Okay, hi, good afternoon everyone. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the panel focusing on capital markets and private equity investment into the industry. Um, my name is Richard Hakes. I'm one of the partners in the shipping group at Reed Smith. Um, my team focuses principally on finance and structured transactions um, across the transportation sector. Uh, and we tend to find ourselves involved in a lot of work with non-bank uh, non investors and alternative investors. Um, I think usually when we've, when we've done these sorts of panels over the last three or four years, we've, we've often kind of come here um, looking maybe at private equity and capital markets in, uh, in the sense of them being a stopgap, um, in the sense of them being there as someone to support the industry uh, very much until bank funding comes back. But I think there's been a, a kind of recognition over the last two or three years in particular that um, the relationship banks continue, uh, not necessarily by, by decision, but continue by, by policy, by regulation, to have to retrench from the, from the shipping market. And we see uh, increasingly an opportunity for non-commercial bank investors to, uh, to contribute further to the space. Um, and although investors may not universally like transportation assets, although they, they may, and uh, this is what we'll hear from uh, some of our, uh, our panel today, they, they continue, to, uh, continue to chase yield and continue to chase returns. And shipping as, as an industry continues to have uh, a real interest there and afford a real opportunity. And we hear some of the, um, some of the good news stories returning to the industry, the, the previous panel um, albeit focused on LNG, spoke, spoke uh, to some of those points. And we see that, uh, of course, um, the fleet growth uh, remains uh, low. And we see a very positive, uh, very healthy um, upward momentum on rates, which creates a lot of opportunity and enthusiasm. So on that note, I'll, um, I'll hand over to uh, the members of the panel. Um, to introduce themselves and uh, perhaps just um, give a, a brief um, introduction to, uh, to your role in the industry as well. Maybe Anders, if we, if we start with you. Yeah, so Anders Meyerhoff, I work at Apex Partners, which is a global private equity firm. We manage about $40 billion in assets today. Um, our typical investment is looking for billion-dollar companies, and so it's not necessarily looking at, at backing just you know, onesies and twosies in the in the asset space. Um, I lead our financial services and business services practice uh, in Europe, and so maritime services is something that some, sometimes goes across each of those different platforms. Hi, Jim Sorenza from DNB. I've been there for the last seven years. I'm responsible for our U.S. high yield and equity sales force. Uh, most of the last decade, I was at Carnegie, where I ran securities globally. And in the prior almost two decades, I spent the lion's share of that time at Goldman Sachs, where I built their U.S. international sales force. Hey, Babu. Uh, heading the um, investment bank at Fernley Securities. Uh, we are focusing on shipping, oil service, and, and energy. Um, so we are a global player uh, within this niche market. Um, yes. 
Hi, uh, my name is Doug Mavernak. I'm uh, running the Jefferies Shipping Investment Banking effort as of January of this year. Um, I've been at Jefferies going back, I guess, 15, 16 years. And, and so prior to the beginning of this year, I was uh, running our equity research effort. And so um, the opportunity arose for me to make the transition over. And given what I thought was a favorable outlook for most shipping sectors, uh, I thought transaction opportunities were going to increase given the uh, macro backdrop and small order books. And so, uh, so I made the move over and, uh, and have since. Uh, that's what I've been doing. Thanks, gents. So um, without further ado then, um, we see a lot of liquidity, um, but I kind of hesitate to use the word alternative investments because I think that kind of comes with maybe some interesting connotations. Um, but it is, a, it is a broad church. And so I wonder, um, perhaps the first question maybe for you, Anders, is um, who are the markets open for at the moment? And shipping, obviously, uh, one of the themes of today is that it's a very uh, sectoral um, industry. And I just wonder, perhaps, if you can talk a little bit, do you, do you draw distinctions between sectors and also between um, geographies? And do you find that, that there is kind of an area, really, that is more attractive to capital right now? Uh, so it, it's a good question. And ultimately, the private equity that we talk about is much different than trying to call different asset cycles in different regions. Uh, ultimately, we find that we're not in the market nearly as much as, as you folks are. And so when we try to play that game, we often lose. Um, so we, we try not to. And so ultimately, our strategy is to try and look for real permanent dislocations and try and back interesting companies to go out and fill those. And one of the things that you talked about in your intro was the fact that there's capital leaving the marketplace and there's a void of capital. Uh, so we as a private equity firm, rather than just try and fill that on a tactical basis, you know, we're looking at actually starting up new lending platforms, um, alternative banks, you know, raise deposits in different geographies and try and provide asset finance to people in, in you know, core geographies. And so those are things where you might have a 6 or 7% yield on your loans, um, but because you're raising deposits at 2%, you can actually generate private equity-like returns by just starting a new bank. And so those are things that we're thinking about doing on our side. In terms of actually just core shipping, you know, we actually, we've started to look at things in, in non-traditional areas like uh, just the U.S., you know, Jones Act companies, given all the trade barriers that are popping up, we think that might be a potential uh, area to play in the future. Uh, but we try not to just pick ideas based on where day rates are today or tomorrow. Thanks, Anders. Rickard, is that, is that uh, some, something you want to comment on? Yeah. Um, I, I think we've seen um, over the last couple of years high volatility is... It's been uh, predict, pre predicted 10 out of the last two upturns. So, so there are, um, uh, you know, uncertainty in the market. I believe our sectors is massively underallocated. Um, we are struggling with prices, or many companies are struggling with their prices uh, on listed names. Uh, however, there is capital available. Um, you only need to differentiate yourself somewhat. Uh, to take some examples uh, on that, I guess we saw big uh, listed established names in the draw book space trading below uh, asset values in US and, and Norway. And then there was a, a newcomer in this so-called oversupplied market that came in with two plus six uh, new Castlemax orders. And, and we're able to raise capital uh, for that. We've seen they differentiated themselves with a, 
with um, forward delivery, uh, financial leverage on their prepayment structure to the arts, and, and IMO 2020 compliant with the modern ships. Um, so Bocos 2020, one of these cases that have differentiated themselves, uh, Hunter Group, um, Avilco Drilling, and, and so forth. Um, I believe right now we are, or Furnace believe we are, are um, ahead of 12 to 36 months of, of, uh, of upturn. We are, of course, very humble towards what's happening on the, on the macro level. And there are a lot of uncertainty factors out there. Um, but based on the fundamentals in terms of uh, market balance, we are very optimistic about most industries. Right now, I think the last pan we had here on LNG looks extremely good. Uh, tankers will probably see an upswing and, and the early movers like Drabok and, and, and containers are now really starting to, to show cash-on-cash uh, -cash, uh, yields. So you will see when they report a few quarters of good figures, I think you will continue to see improvement in, uh, in share prices. Richard, if I could add, I mean, to me, whenever you're looking to see if the window is open for an equity raise or whatnot, the only thing you have to really look at is where is the stock trading on a price and asset value basis. Um, and if you looked at that, uh, then you would see that there are one or two LNG names that are trading above NAV, and so therefore the window is open. I mean, some investors out there, enough investors out there, are pricing in earnings improvement, asset appreciation, et cetera. Um, similarly, um, and you saw it uh, earlier this summer, where there was a number of names in the dry bulk shipping market that were trading above net asset value. You had three companies trying to get through that window as soon as it occurred. Um, but, but that is, to me, the telltale. So when you look at that as kind of that, that, um, that metric, that decision-making metric on follow-on offerings, on whether the IPO window is open, et cetera, um, there seemingly are a couple of opportunities in the LNG space, a couple in the dry bulk space for a variety of good reasons, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But that seems like, other than like special, like really good ideas, that, that, that probably covers the, the ones where the window may be open. Right. And I, and, and I know that brings us to a point where uh, Jim has, has some views on the, on the topic. I mean, Jim, I think one of, one of the things you wanted to touch on is, is the extent to which the industry is, um, is still really there uh, as an attractive proposition for, for equity investors. Um, and especially, I think you have some views on the, the IPO market, maybe. Listen, the first thing we need to stop is the share prices going down. The, um, if you just take the post financial crisis returns, you invested in the S&P 500 and you more than tripled your money, and you invested in shipping and you've got a little less than half of it left, including dividends. You now have most segments, and we'll leave LNG can, you know, carriers out of it because they're in the sweet spot right now. They've got, they've got nothing to worry about with IMO 2020. They've got day rates at $93,000 a day. They don't have an oversupplied market. They're in a unique position, but very, very few places within shipping are in a unique position. So you think about all the universe of investors out there, and the universe of investors, whether it's in dry or in, in, in wet, is basically, you look at the shareholders list and you have three groups. You've got private equity, value guys, and hedge funds. Where are the earnings growth? Where are the earnings momentum? Where are the large passive and ETF accounts? Where are the large cap investors? Shipping doesn't make the radar screen in most of these segments. So what do we need? We need a little more transparency. We need larger companies. We need more M&A. 
And, and we're going through the greatest M&A cycle ever. 18 straight quarters of a trillion dollars of announced deals globally. This, this triples what we saw during the 2006 to 2008 period where the private equity guys dominated the, the M&As. So we're going through an amazing M&A cycle, but shipping is at the tail end of, of that cycle. And ultimately what we need is we need earnings and dividends. When we start ticking all those boxes, then shipping is going to be attractive to an awful lot of people. And that being said, the Sorenza family bought a position in a, in a shipping ETF this summer because I do believe we're at that inflection point <laughs> where people couldn't be any more negative than they are right now. <laughs> so, so, I mean, touching on that then, we obviously know that a lot of the shipping industry is, is comprised of small cap companies. Um, and uh, perhaps that's where that creates a level of illiquidity and maybe also a level of... Um, uncompetitiveness. If you look at shipping in comparison to maybe real estate, maybe aviation, um, is that the problem that frankly there are more attractive propositions out there, Doug? Um, yes. Um, and, and I think one thing that's important to understand is, you know, Ricardo and I both, I mean, we were on the equity research side for a long time and we've sat in front of a lot of investors at Wellington, at Fidelity, places like that. You have to understand that that guy doesn't have to own a shipping stock. He's looking at airlines, he's looking at rails, he's looking at trucks, he's looking at all these other things. It's, you know, shipping stocks are too small to be in many of the benchmarks. I mean, they don't have to be owned. They have to want to be owned. And the reason why you have to want to own them is because you think you're going to outperform whatever benchmark. You can take a small position, the stocks are very volatile, and so you can outperform whatever benchmarks you're judged against. So to Jim's point about, you know, larger companies, you know, M&A, you know, that certainly helps. You know, the cycle helps too. I mean, it's just kind of hard to fight the tape. You can have the most transparency, you can be the biggest company out there, but if you don't have any earnings momentum, any asset appreciation potential, you know, it's going to be hard to find an audience. So to me, in addition to some of the things already stated, you need a few things. One, you know, you need earnings momentum. You need to have the earnings starting to get people excited about it. Two, you need to have that momentum being sustained because otherwise all you see is volatility in, in the stocks and it'll just mirror what you're seeing in the, in the spot market. And then three, you need to have um, some sort of visibility that you're not going to get whacked on the head 12 months from now because this is a guy with a boss and if he buys the stock too early and it underperforms for three months, he could get blown out of his position, uh, his job, losing his job. Or two, you know, if it's just a shorter term, you know, kind of trade, the market's smart. They'll anticipate that and then they may be able to, you know, trade the stock down quicker than this guy can get out. So, so you know, those are some of the additional ingredients I think are required for these things to be more widely owned. And so apart from the, the proposition, obviously, for certain investors that they are, and I'm thinking especially about the, the role for private equity here, apart from the, um, the proposition that they have money and they're willing to invest, um, and there's maybe a question for you, what, what else is the, the proposition that, that is coming to the table other than we've got money and, and we're here? I mean, the, the big value that private equity brings is being able to let medium-sized companies do things that they couldn't otherwise do. Um, it's, it's people who are partners, not necessarily senior lenders and people who are providing your loans. It's people who sit on the same side of the table as you, trying to win or lose together. Um, in, in shipping, generally, there's a little bit of a, a misunderstanding around what private equity is and, and what it isn't, but what it should be. 
uh, is very much a partner to owners to really unleash the potential of a management team, of an ownership group to, to do something transformative or to do something different. And when you talk about uh, this illiquidity in the shipping market because there's a lot of small and medium-sized companies, uh, that's a lot down to history, a lot down to personalities, a lot down to the people who've, who've shaped it, who don't want to give up you know, control of, of their baby, which is completely fair, but ultimately to create those, those large companies that, that are going to have liquidity, that are going to be followed, that are going to be real game changers in the industry, uh, there has to be a catalyst and there needs to be some growth capital or transformational ideas. And so private equity shouldn't just be money. It should be people who go in, who are partners with you, help you understand what, what good looks like and, and build a real world-class business. And so that's where we see the real opportunity in the shipping sector. It, is ha it happens more slowly in this sector, given the personalities and the people who are involved and you know, just the dynastic um, history of, of the industry. But you know, it is a long, slow march that does seem to be happening. Ricardo, I see you. Um, I see you nodding at some of those points. Are you are you uh, on the same page as Anders? Mm, private equity, I I believe, um, offer value in the way that they are very could be very flexible in terms of, of the you know the products and and where they are in the capital structure to to companies and. Uh, Typically, for a company that would need to refinance and, and um, uh, in a in a very weak market environment, but expectations, you know, looking better the next two or three years, they could offer products that might suit better than a than a restructured bank debt or um, or what could be done in the in the in the capital market. So I think there's, uh, you know, there's certain private equity certainly have their role in in uh, in shipping. Um, I also think, uh, as we discussed earlier, consolidation. Uh, I'm a big believer of consolidation. You certainly need to add add some growth uh, uh, growth as well uh, and some earnings momentum. But private equity would could lead uh, consolidation and, and liquidity is what we really need here. We need one and two and three billion dollar companies. So if we're looking at um, consolidation as being, a, as being a priority and if we're looking at a, an environment in which investors really are very much a partner of people in the industry, um, Doug, perhaps a question for you is whether the industry is learning fast enough both from its mistakes of previous cycles and also whether, it, whether it's learning fast enough what the proposition is. Um, it's all very well if, if the investors feel that they know what's required. Is the industry there? Yeah, um, unfortunately, I don't think so. I think it's cyclical for a reason. Um, is that you know you reach points in whatever sector you're talking about in the cycle where just the outlook is very attractive, and it's hard to ignore some of uh, the return possibilities. And you know every cycle there's going to be something different. So this uh, this one is 2020, um, and so every single one there's always something different. 15 years ago as a double hole, single hole phase out. I mean there's always something different, uh, and so that encourages just. It's like in the equity markets, fear and greed. I mean, and, and so, um, so I do think that there are a couple of maybe forced um, reasons for discipline. Everything, some from some private equity uh, guys being on boards of companies these days, uh, to um, bank financing uh, not being as readily available, or at least not as available on the types of terms that we saw pre two thousand and eight. Um, so there are some differences. But you know, unfortunately, I think you know if you were in for Martin Stopford's uh, you know presentation this morning. I mean, industry has a long history, and we tend to repeat our, our same mistakes. 
Jim, are we, are we I, uh, yeah, getting our fingers burned? I'm, I'm so much more bullish than Martin is. <laughs> Something happened in the last two years. We flip-flopped. Um, listen, I think this is going to be different this time. And I think this cycle is going to be longer, and I think this cycle is going to be better. We, we've listened to a few panels today. We've had the banks up here. They're lending less. We've had private equity up here, and I don't know if you're investing more, but prior to this year, the trend was down. Um, we've got investors who we have a smaller group of institutional investors in shipping today than we did in the 2014 to 16 stretch. All of that will create some discipline. All of that, I believe, will create some barriers to entry. And I do believe that IMO 2020 is just going to be one more layer of uncertainty that'll create an opportunity. So I do believe that we're at a trough, and I do believe, or near a trough. That'll be expensive if we're not at a trough. Uh, but I do believe this cycle will be longer. And so I, I find myself more optimistic than most when it comes to most segments within shipping at this point. And so if we're, if we're feeling optimistic, um, what are the areas um, that, that, that we think the industry really uh, possibly needs to look at? I mean, um, is it tightening up around governance? Is it, is it greater transparency? Um, is it greater alignment of fee structures? I'm thinking maybe more on a, uh, we've looked at what the industry as a whole needs to do, but when you're looking at individual value propositions and individual um, uh, owners within the industry, what are, what are, the, uh, what are the greater pull factors that they, they can do to align themselves with, um, with investment opportunities, Anders? As I was alluding to earlier, I think corporate governance, um, transparency and alignment of interests are, are probably the hardest thing that we negotiate in any transaction. Um, again, given the, given the nature of the people who operate in this industry, as, as everyone knows, um, there's a lot of pride in what you've built, uh, in what you want to create, and being able to control those decisions throughout, the, throughout an investment life cycle. This is an industry that's founded by very entrepreneurial people, by very smart people on all sides of the table that know how to make money. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't always make itself conducive to good partnership, to transparent, open structures, um, things that investors are happy to jump behind, um, and not just investors like us, but investors in the public markets that need that stuff whiter than white, um, that may not be uh, able to see through what are relatively complex arrangements. And so although the industry is moving that direction with these things becoming more clean, more clear, uh, there's still a little bit of a ways to go when I compare it to other industries uh, that, that we look at, whether it be financial services or consumers or, or industrial. Um, there's still a ways to go in this industry in terms of um, governance and, and transparency and alignment. It's very clear. Jim, same, same, same question for you, but it'd be interesting to hear perhaps your perspective. Um, I know you, one of your interests is in IPOs that haven't been successful, and I wonder to what extent you feel that had a bearing um, on, on uh, unsuccessful IPOs. So I, think, I think there are at least two factors, maybe more than two factors, but, but getting back to the investment, investment base, for one, if you're trying to do three dry bulk shipping deals in the same month of June, uh, all talking to the same investor audience, which doesn't include all, all the investor classes that we talked about earlier, that's a, that's a race for all the same investors, the, sa the same hedge funds and the same value guys. Um, so part of it is the audience hasn't gotten bigger. 
The second part, okay, so how do we grow the audience? Transparency of corporate governance, that'd be good. Larger companies would be helpful. And uh, again, in the end of the day, earnings, dividends, and uh, companies that are suitable to a lot of investors. Now, when you look at what's worked in the last 12 months, the, the fixed income side has worked better than the equity side has worked in terms of the capital markets. But when you look at the equity side, uh, Norway has probably been a more receptive place on the equity side for, uh, for shipping and offshore in the last 12 months. I wouldn't give it an A, but it's, it's certainly not the, the surprisingly low interest on U.S.-listed uh, entities in the last year. I wonder maybe if now we could, um, we could have a little think about what the, uh, what the investors can do better to make sure that they're aligned with the, with the industry. Um, you know, clearly there are some, some products that are more suitable than others. Um, if, we're, if we're facing uh, continuous capital calls, if we're looking at investor bases that, that need to kind of move in and out, that's maybe not providing the, the level of stability that the ship-owning community needs. And so um, we've looked at what the, uh, what the owners could do. Doug, it would be great to hear a little bit about what are the, uh, what are the um, right things for investors to be doing to find, to find how they can best um, match and partner as, a, as uh, we've heard with, with owners? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think from an institutional investor standpoint, um, they just need to do their homework. Um, you know, they need to get comfortable with, um, with the current financial situation of a company. They need to get comfortable with whether or not there are any um, intercompany transactions, dealings, et cetera. If that's something that's important to them or not, it's not important to everyone. I mean, you know, there are intercompany transactions that take place and fees and whatnot, but, you know, they're deemed to be, you know, uh, normal. Um, so, so it's not like, you know, something that turns everyone off. But, but you know, so those sorts of things. I mean, um, you know, Corporate governance is important. I mean, you've seen even you know some of my old analyst peers putting you know things out there that have been well received in terms of you know talking about who does what right. Um, so those sorts of things, um, you know, and it, it, it's really I think a culmination of some of the things we've talked about already, though, in terms of you know um, you know earnings, dividends, governance, uh, all those sorts of things. Thanks, and uh, Ricard, uh, a similar question for you, but. Um Perhaps if, if I can ask it in a slightly different way, um, you know, we obviously we're, we're looking at whether or not um, non-traditional bank investors can, can, can fill all of the void. Um, you know, are, are bonds part of that solution at a real sort of volume basis? Can they, can they do, simply, can they do what the industry needs them to do? Um, <clears throat> I guess... Um we're talking here about a, uh, a volume, uh, you know, if we were looking at the, uh, the total perspective, if I can have some, you know, circa figures, uh, so 40, 50 billion dollars uh, uh, a year probably needs to be uh, uh, refinanced or, 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 or new financing for, for the major shipping uh, segments. Um, so far this year, you have seen, I guess, six, $6 billion in the Norwegian and, and New York uh, bond market, secured, unsecured notes, etc. I, I think we have, you know, obviously there is extremely strong interest for credit in shipping and oil service today. We see a massive growth from last year 
the year before, uh, etc. So we see a growing trend, um, and and the structures are more flexible. Um, even unsecured bonds are being done now for uh, for shipping. Um, so I think the product is there. The investors um, uh, are um, are showing uh, showing demand. However, to uh, you know, we need some time before going coming to forty billion dollars a year. Right now, we can you know maybe eight ten billion dollars. And I know I know Doug and Jim have both got yeah. points on that. To Ricardo's point, it's a big hole, yeah. and not everyone is capable of accessing some of the markets. Whether you're talking high yield, I mean, converts make a ton of sense for a lot of these companies, but they don't have the trading liquidity to to use those. So there's a variety of instruments. It's just like when we heard in the bank financing market. Bank finance is available to some guys, but not all guys, and it's a similar right. deal, I think, with uh, with some of these instruments we're talking about. Jim, do you uh, do you want to jump in on that one as well? Yeah, let's just let's just look at uh, the cycle that ended with the financial crisis and the cycle over the last uh, last three years. You look at the cycle that ended with the financial crisis. You had a you had a string of M and A and a string of debt financing, and if you just look at the high yield portion of that, two thousand and six, seven, eight two-thirds of the high-yield issuance was for acquisition finance. Today, the last three years, less than 20% of the high-yield issuance is for acquisition finance. More than two-thirds of the, of the financing today is for retiring bonds. Um, the bond market, in, in my opinion, has a lot of room to pick up the delta, but I don't think it can pick up the entire delta, but I do think the bond market has a lot of room, and I don't think the private equity interest is going to be substantial if they can't lever up these companies and if they can't, if they can't use the high-yield market. So I think that goes hand-in-hand. In hand. I don't think you get, I don't think you get private equity growth in the segment if the, if the high-yield bond market doesn't work alongside of it. So if I could chime in, yeah, I think sure. the, there's clearly a supply and demand mismatch. Um, and I think the, the challenge is that you're looking for traditional high yield investors and traditional people who need that financing. And so what we've identified as a gross supply demand imbalance is to say, let's go look for alternative pools of capital and start to fill that fill that hole. So there is a, a ton of capital, whether it's you know, Swedish savers or whether these are people in, in Germany or the Netherlands. Um, quite easy to raise deposits at one to two percent. These people have guaranteed deposits from their institutions, so long as you're willing to be a regulated bank and hold you know, ample amounts of um, uh, tier one capital against it. And what you can do is you can quite easily raise a few billion dollars of capital from these from these sources of liquidity and deploy that into the shipping markets in terms of asset finance. And doing that, you can actually generate private equity returns without forcing people to take private equity style hits on their on, on their asset bases. And so for us, it's this is a very clear supply demand imbalance, but there's an, another way to help solve it besides just trying to you know, match up high yield investors with the people who need capital. There's a more creative way to do it that might save the industry uh, quite a bit of headache. We've heard uh, a little bit about the, the maybe more specific uh, opportunities and challenges for the industry. Um, it'd be interesting to hear from the, the members of the panel a little bit maybe around the, the opportunities and challenges presented by some of the wider macroeconomic factors. Um, people have touched obviously on uh, trade wars, on various challenges at a political level that exist uh, seemingly these days right across the world. Um, and I guess we can view them in a number of different ways in the shipping industry. So. Um, Jim, I see, I see you nodding your head, so maybe if we start with you, it'd be, be good to get your views on that. 
You know, one of my favorite surveys, and, and no one here from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, they do this monthly investor survey, which I love. And one of the questions they ask every month is, what's your biggest fear? What's, your, what's the biggest tail risk? And for the last six months, it's been trade wars. And so you look at the performance in the markets of metals, you look at the performance in the market of emerging markets, you look at the performance of emerging market currencies. So depending on which market you want to talk about, you've got a mar markets that are down 20%, 30%. In the meantime, the S&P just keeps ticking along. And S&P earnings for the first half of this year were up over 23% over last year and will end up up 20% year on year. So the earnings growth in the US is phenomenal. And the cash generation off the US is phenomenal. Dividend, share buybacks, and uh, cash M&A. They don't even need the central bank for the stimulus. So part of my being not as afraid of the trade wars is, is because the markets have already priced in so much. Do I fear the trade wars? Sure. Anything that slows down growth is bad. Anything that, anything that will put this cycle to an end is bad. But we've priced in so much already, it's difficult for me to start to worry about it now. Right. Doug? Yeah, I, as I mentioned in uh, my introductory remarks, as far as you know, one of the reasons why I made the transition over to the banking side is, you know, there are a lot of opportunities that, that seemingly are going to, um, to, to develop. I mean, we're already seeing it with uh, LNG spot rates above 100,000 a day. Um, you know, you're seeing the volatility in the dry bolt market. I mean, whenever you have order books, no matter the segment almost, um, you know, as small as they are and you have a healthy macro, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of things that just pop up. I mean, you know, and you know, I don't know how closely you guys dig into as a broad audience kind of what's happening in the tanker market. Everyone sees V rates at 10 grand a day and LR2, LR1, MR rates sub 10. You know, but, but, you know, there's been a huge inventory destocking taking place in both of those markets, crude and products, that has curtailed shipping demand. I mean, economic growth has been driving uh, oil demand growth, and normally that's a good thing, but whenever, you know, you have this inventory destocking phase, it it's, can't help but hurt demand, but that can only last for so long. You know, last week U.S. oil inventories went below 400 million barrels. I mean, that hasn't been the case in a number of years, and so things are going to get tight here. Um, and then, you know, if you wanted to throw a cherry on the cake for the products market, and we have 2020 with all when we saw panel earlier today talking about the potential for refined product inventory dislocations, you could see new trade routes develop as a result of that on top of everything else. So, so there are a lot of positives that, that are taking place so long as you know, the economy doesn't tank in the next year or two. Um, you don't want the party to end for it, get started for our guys. It's a big, it's a big if. Right. Rickard? Well, uh, I'm concerned about um, the uncertainties we are seeing now. It's 10 years since we had the last uh, downturn. You have um, tariffs of, of, uh, of trade war affecting, uh, with tariffs, tariffs affecting $400 billion of, of trade. That's a lot. That's, you know, 1.5% of or sea bond trade and a lot more for containers. Um, the market, as as Doug was uh, referring to, or sorry, Jim was referring to, uh, has a tendency of discounting um, a lot in advance. And I hope really, I really hope they've done that um, now. Uh, but you know, without any any major setback, uh, the next 12 to 24 months, and uh, so many major recessions, I believe we are. They're looking forward to some really interesting times. I agree with the panel there. It feels like pressure is, is building up and it's very visible in terms of supply chains, whether it's 
um, what's happening between China and the U.S. or or what will or looks to be happening with with Brexit, it, it's not going to be it's not going to be smooth sailing, um, and so there, it's very clear that those pressures are going to are are going to crack. You know what is. What does that mean? Um, it means it's going to be volatile, and volatility brings opportunity. Uh, however, if you take a really long view, as, as we tend to do in terms of when we put our capital to work, we look for five and ten-year cycles. We think that you can actually back some of the secular trends um, that are very clear within the, the maritime space in, in terms of seaborne shipping volumes and, and the like. Um, although these are temporary, what we think will be temporary dislocations that could be violent, um, we think that the next five to ten years are going to be uh, good for the shipping sector. And so looking for disruptive, creative opportunities to put capital to work, it's, it's impossible for us to, you know, to time those. And so we're very much open for business, but we need to be creative in how we do it and be careful about how we, how we structure it. Thanks. Um, I'm conscious of time, um, and I don't want to... Um, ask these guys to do any more crystal ball gazing, but I'm also conscious that they um, put a lot of thought into uh, preparing for today. So I'd just like to give the, uh, the, the, the four members of the panel an opportunity maybe to, um, to offer any sort of closing thoughts that they, uh, they might uh, want to make that they haven't had an opportunity to, um, to raise with the, uh, with the event so far. Maybe if we start, uh, Doug, with you. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, you know, you did a good job of monitoring, Richard, so I think we covered a lot of it. I mean, you know, discipline. I mean, so there's certain things you can control and certain things you can't, right? I mean, you can't really control uh, where you are in the cycle and how long it's going to take for, for things to start to improve. But in the meantime, it just remain disciplined. I mean, as it pertains to, you know, everything from ordering to, you know, how you, you know, manage your balance sheet, um, you know, terms of dividends whenever things get better, even be disciplined with that. I mean, you don't want to take too much cash out of the companies because inevitably, you know, there could be another downturn. So, so I think, you know, discipline in a variety of forms is probably not the worst thing. Okay. So we, uh, we have, we've got a buzzword, discipline. Riccardi, you... Uh... Yeah, I think these uh, few boxes all companies need to tick off. Uh, and the, company, uh, the market has learned a lot uh, the last five, ten years. Uh, Corporate governance, alignment of interest, uh, a very strong focus on on uh, on management. Um, those are, you know, 2020 compliance as well. That's uh, a need to have today, and and nice to have, or you know, nice or need to have. You need to be, you know, first, or you need to be unique or, or different in in some some shape or form. You need to offer uh, interesting. Uh, investment proposition to to uh, to the investors for them to to get interest, uh, but I also believe there's a, a massive under allocation in in the industry as a whole. Um, in the introduction speak, speech today, I, I mentioned total market caps of global shipping is around 200 220 billion dollars. That's about you know 2.1 percent of the U.S. market alone. So. 98% of the investors are not looking at shipping. So, um, but when this market starts, you know, showing a, a real recovery and uh, a few quarters of, of good results, uh, these market caps can uh, can double very simply. Um, and I think there's um, there's a great opportunity of, of that happening the next uh, 12 to 24 months. Thanks, Rick. Jim, you already spoke a little bit about discipline, and you spoke a bit about consolidation as well. Any, any? Yeah, I mean, the demand side of the equation, the demand for the commodities. Um, you know, we're in a world of 
call it three-ish percent global growth. And most of these shipping segments are tied to commodities where the demand will probably be better than average. You know, and you think about IMO 2020, and you think about how much additional oil it requires if these refineries are going to be operating at full capacity. Um, and so uh, not, only, not only do we have an opportunity because of some of the barriers of entries we talked about, but the demand side of the equation could be very good. Thank you. So I think part of the part of the disconnect um, between what you hear in the room around liquidity and and what you see in terms of on the front page of the newspapers is the fact that there's just the world outside of maybe this room is awash in liquidity. Um, there is a ton of capital that's looking for a home. Um, that is that's not going to change anytime soon. And so we think that we think that the, the markets are going to be open for interesting opportunities. Our firm, in, for example, has billions of dollars that we're looking for transformative ideas. Um, so that we can put them to work. And so, you know, as people have creative ideas, as people have, you know, unique opportunities to transform sectors, there will be a home um, and there will be a place and people to support that. Uh, even though you may not be seeing it and hearing it today, that the world is very much open for business. Uh, and I don't think the maritime sector is any different. Okay, thank you. Well, that, that um, concludes this panel. I'd like to thank the, uh, the four members of the panel. And uh, it's great to hear such positive and constructive messages for the industry. So thank you. Thank you.